This past week, February 21st through 27th, was National Eating Disorders Awareness Week. This year, the campaign was called See the Change, Be the Change, and its goal, as every year, is to raise awareness about eating disorders, remove some of the stigma and mystery surrounding these illnesses, and to foster hope and enact positive change that will support people suffering from these disorders and their families. There's a lot more awareness these days about these life-threatening disorders, and the message of hope couldn't be more important in encouraging people to seek out some of the excellent support and treatment that is out there. But such treatment is intensive and takes time, and as a consequence, it is expensive and usually beyond the means of most people if the insurance companies that run their health care plans won't pay for it. Today on ERISA Watch, I talked to the father of an eating disorder patient about the overwhelming impact on his whole family of having to fight for insurance coverage while simultaneously trying to deal with diagnosing and treating what was truly a life-threatening illness. Regular listeners will know that I've talked before about the obstacles people suffering from eating disorders face in accessing treatment and paying for such treatment from their insurance companies and healthcare plans, even though these disorders are highly treatable and many patients can achieve long periods of remission or full recovery. Here to discuss this with me today is Ed, a man whose teenage daughter began suffering from a severe eating disorder while she was still in high school. As you'll hear, it took the family some time to even get a good diagnosis, to realize that their daughter had an eating disorder, and what followed were multiple emergency room visits and hospitalizations and many months of outpatient treatment that was ultimately not successful. But when the family was told in no uncertain terms that they needed to get their daughter into a residential treatment facility, likely in order to save her life, Blue Shield, which administered their health care plan, refused to pay for this treatment, saying that mental health residential treatment was not covered at all under their plan. Hi, how are you, Ed? Oh, good, good. So um, take me back now to um, 2007 or so when you um, first came to realize that your daughter was suffering from an eating disorder. Initially, we were focused on Lindsay's physical behavior. She was complaining of GI issues. She was losing weight. There were numerous trips to the ER. And all this time, we are looking for something physical. And the doctor that was taking the lead, he suggested that there might be something more going on, something on the order of a psychological disorder or eating disorder. And we, as a family, were really in denial of that. And then yet, no, not my little girl. That, that couldn't be. Eventually, we had to give over to the uh, possibility that, yeah, okay, there's a psychological issue here. And at the prompting of our primary care guy, we got Lindsay enrolled in a uh, uh, eating disorder clinic, which was an outpatient clinic uh, in Sacramento and um, specializing in disorders. And And the whole time, really having a hard time coming to grips with the fact that 
you know, we could be dealing with a heating disorder. Uh, it's just the, the whole idea of it was very foreign to us. But prior to that, the, the brushes that Lindsay had literally with death, and I'm not embellishing when I say she came, she was on death's door on a number of occasions. There was nothing left to pursue except, okay, you know, we have to give over to the fact that she, in fact, does have an eating disorder. And those were the, those were the very early days when it's right in front of you <laughs> and you're in denial, you know, uh, but when you give over to the fact that this is probably what's happening, I, I could see it very clearly at that point, what was going on. And she was in the behaviors, uh, uh, the bulimic behaviors, and she had, you know, drastically lost some weight. Uh, she ran the whole gambit from bulimia all the way to anorexia and everything in between. So she wasn't really a, uh, you know, classic case of uh, just this or just that. She would she would not eat, but then when she did eat, she would binge and purge. Lindsay's a very attractive young lady. She's you know she's talented. She could sing. She's very outgoing, uh, and a lot of it uh, is just uh, her anxiety. So how did you come to um, realize that she needed residential treatment? Like what was going on then? And and what happened once you realized she needed residential treatment and got her into it? Can you can you talk about sort of that period? Sure. She was an outpatient in uh, a program in Sacramento uh, with the summit. It's barely adequate if, if uh, the case that they're dealing with is not severe. Uh, I think they can make a dent in it. At some point, it, uh, they make a uh, determination along with um, uh, the primary care guy, and they decide that, you know, this, this isn't working. Uh, this isn't totally working, and she needs 24-7. I mean, that's, that's the progression. And at that point, uh, you, we got involved with uh, seeking authorization through the insurance carrier. You know, we, when we talked earlier, I think you mentioned your daughter was down to like 85 pounds at one point. And, um, and you just said it a few minutes ago that she had been hospitalized a number of times. Um, yeah. So was that around this time? I just want to sort of get a picture of sort of how severe this was. Yes, uh, that's exactly right. The, the, the ramp up to seeking authorization did in fact, include numerous hospitalizations, numerous uh, travel to a ER. But then you did realize what it was and, and that she needed um, residential treatment for an eating disorder. Were you surprised that even though it was really clear, I think, at that point that your daughter needed this treatment, that her life was literally in danger without it, that your insurance wouldn't cover it? Was that a surprise to you at that point or not? I think it was the natural progression. There was no other explanation at that point. So I don't know that it was a surprise, but it was a uh, evaporation of the denial. The denial kind of faded away and the realization set in that my daughter has a mental disorder. My daughter ha has an eating disorder. Uh, so I, I don't know that it was a surprise as much as it was, uh, as I said, acceptance. But I was thinking as well of your insurance company's reaction to whether they would pay for this kind of treatment. I mean, were you surprised, though, that, you know, here's this treatment that she needs for this mental health condition that is, you know, 
literally life-saving. I mean, because you're, you know, at that point, you've sort of exhausted everything else. Were you surprised or at least I'm sure disappointed that your insurance company was saying that they wouldn't pay for, for this treatment at all? Well, at that point, I was totally and absolutely defeated and hopeless as far as getting the coverage that my daughter needed. And at that point, we flew over to Utah to get her enrolled in a uh, residential treatment. And uh, in doing so, we, we submitted a claim once again, and it was denied. And at that point, I had put a uh, place a second mortgage on our house uh, to pay for it. And, and the uh, residential treatment was in excess of $70,000. So you can start to see the, the burdens that were being placed both emotionally on the family and financially. And that's kind of when the wheels start coming off. At that time, there was already a federal mental health parity law on the books. There was also a California mental health parity law. And, and yet insurance companies, and not just Blue Shield, there are other ones as well, were writing policies and people and, and you know, plans were, uh, healthcare plans were being written this way that simply excluded residential a coverage for residential treatment of um, of eating disorders and other mental health disorders, and our firm Cantor and Cantor actually brought a case about this um, and said that this violated mental health parity, and we're successful um, in that case. It's a it's a case called Harlech, um, a really sort of groundbreaking decision. But, you know, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, on the on the physical side, you wouldn't just say to somebody, um, you know, um, you can't have, um, you know, you can't have skilled nursing care, even if you need it to save your life. And plans weren't saying that on, on the physical side, but they were, you know, excluding this really needed, you know, and for most people with eating disorders, it's something that they're going to need at one, at some point, residential treatment, and they were simply excluding it. What, what kind of advice would you give to other people to try to get their insurance companies or, um, or coverage under a health care plan? Uh, for yeah. for mental health treatment or or even other kinds of treatments. Yeah. In in retrospect, what you know, the lesson that I've learned: document everything, keep the paperwork, follow the process. But when the time comes where they send you the letter of denial and say that you are free to sue if you choose, and bear with me when I describe my state of mind at the time. Insurance company has said no. The state regulatory board has said no. The court case came in favorably. I reapproached the state and they basically put it on the back burner. So at that point, I basically, you know, you throw up your hands. I would say proceed diligently towards litigation. I was in over my head and needed help. I think you're right to tell people that it's good to seek legal advice when you're, you know, up against an insurance company that is denying a, a really significant claim for uh, for benefits for treatment that you know is medically necessary. And here it's clear that it was medically necessary. Honestly, for insurance companies, it's about it's about profit motive and and there's no mystery there and you know without without regulation without you know 
changes in the law, which which did take place here. You know, I, I'm I'm happy to say that plans and insurance policies no longer have this flat exclusion, or we don't see that anymore. Certainly not here in California, but I, I don't really see it anywhere anymore, which isn't to say you can get the coverage. I mean, there's still all sorts of problems and obstacles to getting the coverage, but there wouldn't just be a flat, we don't cover this at all kind of denial right. anymore. Right. Well, that, and that's good news. That, it that, is that, good that, news. That, it's it's progress. It's it's incremental progress. I have to say, but um, but my guess is that if you know that nowadays, if if um, if your daughter had been, if you'd been in the same situation, the insurance company would have likely pay, agreed to pay for some of her treatment. I'm based on a lot of experience that I have and that others at my firm have. They probably wouldn't have paid for the whole course of treatment, the whole, you know, three and a half, four months, but they wouldn't have just flatly denied. She was very ill and she was very young. So I think that you would have gotten some, <laughs> it, you would have had a slightly different experience, but I think it still would have been a, a difficult experience dealing with the insurance company is my guess. On an upbeat, a more upbeat note, I think you've told me this. How is your daughter doing today? It sounds like she's doing quite well. She's doing very well. And and once again, it's like this this story ended well because uh, in all honesty, however it happened, she got the treatment that she needed. I mean, she got the treatment that she needed. She got the tools in residential to carry her through. Uh, when all treatment stopped, she had the tools. She could go forward. She has. And it, it ended well. This might be really a chilling question to ask, but... Do you ever think about what might have happened if you hadn't gotten your daughter into residential treatment when you did and if she hadn't had that support? And that can happen to people because not everybody, you know, even, you know, not everybody has a a home that they can put a second mortgage on and can come up with the money because it's, you know, treatment that, in my opinion, that's well worth it, but it's very expensive and people just don't have the resources. Do you feel like there would have been a different outcome or there might have been a, a different outcome, a much worse one, if, if she hadn't gotten the treatment? My daughter, she was at death's door. She was at death's door more than once, more than once. And some of the, uh, some of the people that she encountered along the way, some of her peers in treatment, and these girls, they do develop bonds, trust me, many of them. And I... I, I don't embellish when I say this. Many of them are not with us today. You know, I don't think it's, you know, it's likely that those who run insurance companies are just going to sort of see the light, so to speak, and and start acting differently. But I do think that as the case law develops, as policy and laws and regulations develop, that hopefully things will get better. And they have gotten a little bit better, frankly, since the since the time that you, you know, struggled with getting Blue Shield to, to pay for this treatment and, and getting these denials. It has gotten a little bit better. It's still not a good system in, in my in my view, because people still have to fight for, frankly, the amount of residential treatment that their treating doctors and clinicians are telling these patients and families what what's what's needed, and and they know they deal with it all the time, and the um, the consequences of no treatment or not enough treatment couldn't couldn't be more stark and and severe as as you've just pointed out and i think anorexia is is um 
one of the most, if not the most dangerous, you know, sort of mental health conditions uh, with the highest mortality rate of, of any mental health condition. And bulimia, I think, is not far behind. So it really is important to get these stories out there and to raise awareness about this. So I can't thank you enough for, for sharing the story. I, I know it was a really tough time and probably um, painful to think about those days again, but I'm so happy to hear that your daughter is doing well. I think you told me she's been married for a long time. She's really living a, a good, fulfilling life. And I think that message is important too, like you say, to get that sort of message of of hope out there for for people, for families, and for patients who are struggling with this that um, that it is possible to not just go into remission, but sometimes to completely recover from an eating disorder. Yeah. If you can get your loved one into the treatment and get the insurance companies to comply with the law, uh, there's hope. There's hope. Well, thank you so much. Um, it was so nice meeting you, Ed. Nice meeting you, Liz. A lot has changed in the more than decades since Blue Shield refused to pay for Ed's daughter's residential treatment, and the family was forced to take out a second mortgage on their home to get her the treatment she needed. Because of decisions like Harlech, healthcare plans and insurance policies almost never contain flat-out exclusions anymore for residential treatment. And California and other states have improved upon their mental health parity laws but more needs to be done. It's still the case that people die every day from eating disorders, and everyday insurance companies deny coverage for residential and other needed treatment for eating disorder patients. These two things are not unrelated, and it simply should not be the case that a family dealing with a life-threatening illness should be forced to fight their insurance company or to borrow money to get the treatment their child needs. It's high time that healthcare insurers be required to pay the price for mental health care treatment. As always, today's episode was brought to you by Cantor and Cantor. Our producer is Emily Hopkins. Our composer and engineer is Andrew Payson. Special thanks to Ed for sharing his family's story. New episodes of Arissa Watch will be available the first Friday of every month. I'm Elizabeth Hopkins. See you next time.